Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Time to uh, talk about sleep on a day where it's raining, blinding sheets, and the weather is conducive to it. But you can't always sleep. Dr. W. Chris Winter is the author of a new book, The Sleep Solution, Why Your Sleep is Broken and How to Fix It. Doctor, thanks for doing the show. My pleasure, Sue. Good to talk to you again, and happy National Pajama Day. Sounds like the weather where you're at is conducive to stay in your pajamas and go to work in your pajamas. 100%. Unfortunately, we wore our dress clothes, which is such a disappointment. (laughs) Now, let me ask you this, Dr. Winter. In your research, how long have people been fixated on sleep? That's a good question. I mean, I don't think it's been that long. I mean, my, my understand, the way I kind of think about it is I think in the past, number one, people probably thought about sleep more as a trait. It's almost like eye color. I don't think we, nobody really thinks about eye color. Or, you know, it's kind of like maybe the pre-hydration days in sports where nobody really thought about, you know, maybe it would be a good idea for us to hydrate before we go out there and play this athletic, you know, sport or whatever. So I think it's one of those things that the science kind of caught up to it. There's always been sort of a mythology and lore about sleep, which is I think is, is as fascinating as the science. So it's just kind of all these things kind of converged at once, and Colin Sullivan came up with a CPAP and the way to treat sleep apnea, so that kind of created dialogue. But I think we've always talked about it, but we've never really talked about it as something that's modifiable, which I think is, is makes all the difference. What are the easy things we absolutely positively need to understand about sleep? I think the first thing that everybody needs to understand about sleep is that we all do it. So if you're somebody who introduces yourself at a dinner party as, uh, well, my name's Frank and I don't sleep, uh, you're, 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 not, you're not being truthful, or at least you're, you're not informed about the way sleep works. And you're not alone. I mean, Forbes magazine, I saw a headline that said something about why 50 million Americans can't sleep. I mean, that's a lie. There's no 50 million Americans out there unable to sleep. So we have to talk, you know, talk about in terms of when somebody says they can't sleep, what do they really mean? They probably mean they're not sleeping when they want to sleep or they're frustrated about some sort of aspect of their sleep or they don't feel good the next day and they think that maybe it's coming from their sleep, which they may be, they may be correct in that. So to me, the biggest part of writing this book was I felt like for as much talk as we have about sleep, we were lacking a certain basic understanding of it or a basic set of rules um, that allowed people to kind of fall back on that mythology we were talking about. Like I was just looking at this fantastic painting called The Nightmare, this kind of, you know, Renaissance-looking woman draped over a bed, and there's this little goblin sitting on her chest. Um, It's kind of a famous painting. And I think a lot of people maybe think about sleep in those terms. We want to think about you know, sleep in terms of what we think about in 2018. We're science-based, evidence-based, and kind of move forward from there. Very, very good. And uh, you write about um, how this could actually lead to poor health in people, right? 
Absolutely. So when you look at individuals who are truly not sleeping, and what I mean by that is the ER nurse that's working, you know, overtimes to make ends meet, or the guy who's a truck driver, but he's also stocking shelves in a big warehouse you know, as a second job, and, and really kind of trying to squeeze in sleep in addition to all of his other family responsibilities in between, those individuals who are not getting enough sleep because of choice, or God, what we were doing as medical residents many years ago, it's extremely harmful to your body. I mean, it is. There was a great article, a paper that was written that compared that to something like toxic paint fumes and the toxins and smoke of a burning building. I mean, it's it's right up there on the marquee. So it's important to understand that if we're not making good decisions about the sleep we're getting, um, you know, because, hey, you know, I, I can get three or four hours sleep, but I can do just fine even though I'm falling asleep when I go to the bathroom during the day, you know, in, in, the, in the bathroom stall, I'm nodding off in there, um, then we're not doing the best thing for our health. Um, and, and Ariana Huffington's book, I'll put a little plug in for her book, if you don't believe in sleep, you know, that was what her whole book was about. Like, look, let me paint an argument for why sleep is important. I think my book is more of, okay, you've decided sleep is important. Now you want to do something about it. Before you got on the show, I said uh, you were the guy that put Ariana Huffington to sleep, and people got bad ideas from it, so I can't say that anymore. <laughs> Well, better than saying I was the one who slept with Ariana Huffington. Well, that, that, there you that go. Be, so, uh, that wouldn't be good ideas either. Yeah. Ariana is a lovely person, and I com- just completely support and am in awe of her crusade um, to, to, to make people more aware of what's causing burnout in the workplace. She's a, she's a terrific a role model in that way. Let me ask you this, then, because you raise an interesting point about the uh, medical students. Knowing what we know and having doctors who understand, why do medical students do this? Why do medical schools do this to their students? It doesn't make any sense. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think number one, um, it's historical, um, and, and it's like I work with a lot of sports teams. It's sort of like, well, that's the way it was when I was a player, and that's the way it's going to be. There's still a lot of that mentality. Number two. There's an interesting idea that when, you, when you're in a medical center and you're a resident and a patient comes in, they're having a stroke, and you diagnose it, you start treating it, you meet the family, you kind of invest in that patient, all of a sudden, to turn over that patient's care to the person the next morning, it doesn't feel good. Um, you want to see it through. So there's a lot of resistance. You would think not so much within the actual doctors, but there's a lot of resistance with the doctors that it creates a lack of continuity of care. The biggest issue is we simply don't have the resources to to you know reduce duty hours. And this happened when I was a resident. When I was a chief resident at the University of Virginia Department of Neurology, a big part of my job was to make sure we did not go over the allowable duty hours for our residents. So I had to chase people out the door, and it was sort of like, okay, who, who, what patients are you still taking care of? Okay, I need to follow up on the spinal tap of this patient. I need to look at the MRI results on this patient. So there's just a lot of handovers of care where now I don't really have that deep understanding of the patient anymore, not like the person who admitted them did. And that can create problems too. So there's a lot of issues that we just don't have the support. The government doesn't pay for more residents even though they want us to get rid of duty hours. So it's a really impossible situation for a lot of hospitals. All right, let's talk about uh, shift workers, though, because we, we, uh, when I started in radio, I worked overnights, and you were never, never, ever, ever right during the day after an overnight. So uh, what kind of <laughs> what kind of things can happen to people who are shift workers, maybe working hours when, when other people don't? How bad is that for your health? 
you know, when it comes to when it comes to things that we talk about in sleep that are bad for your health, insomnia and restless legs and sleep apnea, I'm not sure anything is worse for your health than shift work. Um, our brains like a schedule. So whether you're a big supporter of the military or you are not, the military certainly does sleep right. You go to bed every night at the same time. You get up in the morning and go out and stand outside in the beautiful sunlight if the sun's even up, put a backpack on your back, you run 10 miles, and your schedule is the same every day. Your meal times are the same, your exercise, your light exposure, your sleep time. So those kinds of things really set your brain up to sleep quite well. When we are sleeping at different times, and by definition, we're generally eating at different times. We're seeing light at different times. We're in interacting with people at different times. So those things are terrible for our brain. Nothing, are, nothing in our bodies are done accidentally. It's all in a schedule. And we start to disrupt the very nature of that schedule. We start to see all kinds of problems, cardiovascular problems, cognitive problems. Even it's been thought that shift work is a class 2A carcinogen, meaning it's leading to certain forms of cancers, particularly breast cancer in women, as some evidence has shown. So it, it's just really important for us, if we can, to try to create a situation where we are getting a standard amount of sleep at the same time every day. And uh, what, what do you believe is a, a good amount of sleep at the same time every day by hour? How many? You know, to me, I think really what we're looking for is we're looking for somebody to get about seven to eight hours of sleep a night with the understanding that sleep is a variable, um, just like caloric intake or height or eye color. If you look to your parents, and your parents didn't sleep a lot, and your dad was a high-powered attorney and your mother was a cardiothoracic trauma surgeon, then there's probably a good chance that you don't need that much sleep either. You may be on the other side of that bell curve. So for somebody who needs six hours, 45 minutes of sleep every night, trying for them for them to try to get eight hours, they're setting themselves up to fail and, and potentially, quote, have insomnia. For a lot of people who have insomnia, it's not they can't sleep. It's they're going to bed at a time when their brain is saying, we're not, we're not ready to sleep. It's no different than going to lunch at you know, 9.45 in the morning. You sit down in the restaurant, the waitress says, what do you want? You're like, I'm not that hungry. Well, why did you come here? Well, I've decided 9.45 is my lunch time because that works well for my schedule. Well, great that it works well for your schedule, but your brain may not have developed the, the drive to eat at that point, so you have to determine what you're going to do about that. That's not really an appetite problem, no reason to take a pill. You just need to wait, and that's how sleep is for a lot of people. Is that tough for some people, though, if they have to be uh, awake at, at 6 a.m. and they try to go to bed to get seven or eight hours of sleep and they can't sleep? Well, what should they be doing then differently? Well, to me, I think that the first thing you need to do is you need to evaluate is your, your, is your bedtime that you've decided upon, this, you know, 11 o'clock, is that the right bedtime for you? So when patients come to my office, you know, and I see them or I'm dealing with an athlete and they say, I go to bed every night at 10 o'clock. How long does it take you to fall asleep? Uh, I don't know, two hours, three hours. Why have you decided 10 o'clock is your bedtime? It's amazing. <laughs> the looks on people's faces when you ask them that question. They're kind of like, well, uh, I don't know. I never thought about it. Or my partner goes to bed at 10 o'clock. Great. You know, if your partner ate an entire pizza, do you think you would eat an entire pizza? You know, so it's one of those things where there's never a lot of thought into it sometimes. And, and, and I think there's also fear that's involved. Well, if I go to bed at 10 o'clock and my alarm clock's set for 6, I can get 8 hours. 
if, if, if I were to go to bed later, then I can't get my eight hours. And I saw a doctor on TV one time said, if you don't get eight hours of sleep, you'll die of a heart attack or a stroke, and God forbid, both at the same time. So nobody wants to die of a heart attack and a stroke at the same time. So now you're going to bed almost out of fear. I've got to get my eight hours or bad things are going to happen. Well, that's not really the way it works. The other thing, too, is I think that people really need to be comfortable with, number one, being in bed awake. I've had people tell me that, you know, lying in bed for an hour before they go to bed is a hellish situation. <laughs> I don't think it is. I think it's, you're in bed in the dark, it's quiet, it's comfortable, and the maze, you know, for me, my, my boys aren't breaking or losing my possessions, <laughs> ma- making dumb decisions at school. I'm not being told I need to paint the basement again because the beige we painted, it's not as good as this off-white she's found. You know, it's, you know, so it's kind of nice time. It's quiet. I can think about what I want to do that weekend. I can think about my celebrity crush, which is Jada. So if Jada, you're listening, um, love, to, love to talk to you sometime. <laughs> It's a great time, but a lot of patients describe it as being awful. That idea of being in bed and not being able to fall asleep is just being this terror in their lives. They dread, you know, when they're getting ready to go to bed at night. So we need to get away from that and understand that resting, even if we're not sleeping, if we effectively rest, can make us feel really good the next day. So we need to take ourselves off the hook when it comes to our sleep. Can you make up for lost sleep? And how about the weekends when people say they quote-unquote sleep in? I think you can. I think you can make up for lost sleep, but it needs to be in the short run, meaning that if you have a terrible weekend or for no reason, no, no, you know, it wasn't your fault. You were flying home on the weekend and you got hung up in you know, LaGuardia Airport and the flight was delayed and you finally didn't make. You finally made it home to um, uh, to, to Pennsylvania. You know, really late. Um, then you know, yeah, take a little nap or sleep in the next day to kind of make up for that that sleepy loss, but you need to do it relatively quickly. I think once you start to get away from that sleep loss period, it's harder and harder to make it up, meaning that the sleep that I lost when I was in residency, I'm never going to make up for again. All I can do is, you know, try to have my best sleep moving forward. So most people who talk about a sleep debt think that you can make it up, but it has to be made up relatively quickly um, uh, to, to, to truly make up for that loss. So if you had a bad night last night, Make it through your day-to-day. Today's National Pajama Day, so you can, you know, you have an excuse to wear your pajamas to work. Um, go home, take a little bit of a nap, and move on with your life. It was great to talk to you today, Dr. Winter. Your book is The Sleep Solution, and uh, I'm glad you appeared and gave out good advice. So thanks so much. Hey, thank you for having me, Sue. You take care. You as well. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? You spend only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 